to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we're looking this morning at verses 15 through 22. I'm titled today's sermon as God's Law and Promise. And as we look at these verses, Galatians 3, 15 through 29 is really the the section that we want to consider, but there's so much here as, as Paul continues to break apart the, the law and God's promise to Abraham and the interworking of faith and how faith works with the law and is not contrary to the law. We're going to break it, through, break it down into a couple weeks. So today we'll look at God's law and promise. And as we prepare to read our text, I want to make a note here. We'll come back in a moment and look at this um, in a little bit of detail. But Paul uses the term covenant and promise in this text, and he uses them almost interchangeably. And we want to look at that and understand what's the difference between a covenant and a promise, but just know as we read through this that, that those terms are there, and we will look at that in just a moment. So let's read our text, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time and dive in. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 22. And friends, this is the word... Of the living God. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even, as, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now, and as we desire to sit under the authority of your word by the working of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to rightly focus and orient our minds. Lord, may we, may we see and hear and receive the truth as you have laid it forth as you have for us today. Lord, any time that we are under your word, whether corporately or privately, it is only by a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit that that word bears fruit in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, even now that your spirit would come, that your spirit would quiet our hearts and our minds, 
that your spirit would move in power among us. And Lord, that you would do indeed, as the Son has prayed, that you would sanctify us in the truth. For your word is truth. God, we are the recipients of the greatest blessing in the history of the world, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And as we sit under your word, Lord, may it be that miraculous work that catches our attention, our focus, and our devotion. Lord, would you please show us Christ. Lord, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your promises. Show us where we fall short, where we have broken your law, where we have sinned against you, the holy and only God. But then, Lord, captivate us with the glory and the perfect and the finished and the perfecting work of Christ. Lord, may we have more and more of Jesus. We pray this all now in his name. Amen. So as we pick up in Galatians 3 this morning, we're really in, in a part of a bigger story. In um, chapter 3, Paul shifted his focus to speak of the law and how the Galatians do not be, need to be so foolish as to desert the gospel of Christ, whereby you are saved through faith alone in Christ alone, and they are not to desert that, to add or to mingle works of the law with that faith. So this is part of that bigger story, and so we're looking often here in chapter 3 at the law because that is Paul's focus. That was the issue facing the Galatians was they were mingling law with faith. So, so as we continue to, to dive in on that, to, to harp on that, it's not that we are a congregation full of legalists. It's that that's what the text is before us. And the Lord is sovereign and powerful and able to work through every inspired word of Scripture. So let us give our full and devoted attention to God's word. Now, what we see in the text before us is that the law came to identify and to confine sin until God's promise of the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ could come. God's promise was that Christ would come, that faith in Christ would be revealed even to a, a more full version, and then that he would impart righteousness to those whom he chooses to save. And the purpose of the law, as we'll see in this text, was to confine and to identify sin. Paul charges the Galatians to look away from the futility of the law, to look away from the law for anything beyond defining what sin is, and to look to Christ in faith and repentance, and therefore in obedience. The charge to us today, then, is similar. We have the full scope, the full view of God's redemptive plan before us. We have seen and witnessed through the authority of Scripture the work of Christ, the perfect life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. And we even have, through prophetic words of Scripture, what will happen at the end times. We know the full story. And so with that scope and view in mind, we must not be so foolish as to look to the law for salvation. Rather, we must allow the law, we must allow God's word to serve its intended purpose and show us our great need for a Savior. For that is the purpose of the law, to show us 
that we are sinners, to show us that we are in need of God's grace, that we must go to Christ in faith, in trust, and in repentance. And then that all comes together and works in us a devoted love and obedience to our Savior. So that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to work through this text in three points, the first of which we want to see the surety of God's promises. The surety of God's promises in verses 15 through 18. And now I mentioned before we dive into all of this, I mentioned that we want to consider the differences between a covenant and a promise. And those differences are very small, so stick with me. We'll consider them, and then we'll look at them in the text. A covenant, by its most basic definition, is a mutual agreement. You think about a marriage covenant. It is a man and a woman coming together, agreeing to be joined together in one flesh. So it is two parties agreeing to carry out certain duties to and with one another. A promise is similar, but a promise is only one party. It would be like me promising to you that we will be done by 12 o'clock noon today. I can't make that promise, but it would be me making a promise and then seeing that promise through. Now, if those definitions are not small enough for you, let me confuse you a little bit more. Vine's Expository Dictionary tells us that when a covenant involves the Lord, it, it is interchangeable with the idea of a promise. And when God makes a covenant, he makes a promise, and God always keeps his promises. So when God makes a covenant, he makes a promise, and that promise will be fulfilled. Now, while being faithful to his promises, the Lord will hold man responsible when man breaks a covenant with God. We are under the new covenant, and if we were to break that covenant by walking away from faith, Surely there would be eternal consequences. Now, if that's still a little bit confusing, let's look at these verses, verses 15 through 18, because Paul explains this really in a, in a very helpful way. He begins in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The ESV says that this is a man-made covenant. It's a covenant by men on the terms of men. We know from the book of Hebrews that when men make promises, when men make covenants, Hebrews 6.16 says that we must swear by one greater than ourselves. Our promises always look for a greater and a more firm and a more sure standard whereby we make our promise. But Paul says that even when a covenant, even when a promise is made in human relationships, in human agreements, even when that covenant is ratified, when it is settled, when it is validated, Paul says that no one disregards it. No one adds conditions to it. For this is the seriousness of a promised agreement. When we give our word, Scripture is clear that we keep our word. When we give our word, a promise or an agreement that's made cannot be violated without it being sinful. It cannot be nullified. It cannot be changed. Of course, we know in the world of contracts that, that if all parties agree, you can change a contract. But when you give your word, you are held to that word. And so Paul says, even in terms of human relationships, 
you should understand that a promise and a covenant are sure things. They cannot, they will not, they must not be violated. Dropping down to verse 17, we see Abraham continue this explanation in regards to Abraham. He says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promises. So as to nullify the promise that God made to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to bless all nations through him. Paul's established then that when men make promises, when men make covenants, they will not be broken. So how much more so, Paul then says, when God makes a promise, when God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, it is a sure thing. You can take it to the bank. It will not be changed. Yes, 430 years later, Paul writes, yes, God did make a covenant. He he updated his agreement with his people to bring them under the Mosaic law in the old covenant. But Paul says that does not invalidate a covenant that was previously ratified by God. Not only does it not nullify that covenant, but that promise cannot be invalidated. It cannot be nullified. So what's the point of all this? Paul says you have the law. You know the law. You've brought yourself under the law. But this law does not change the promise of God. A few weeks ago, we looked at the idea that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted as righteous because of his faith. And Paul says, it was that faith that saved Abraham. It is that faith that will save you today, Galatians. And it is that faith, that belief that will save everyone until the end of days when Christ returns. Since the covenant remains, the promise remains. And remember, friends, God is always faithful to his promises. He cannot lie, and he cannot break his word. And that when we consider God's promises and his covenant to the Old Testament people, the Old Covenant, the promise to Abraham, always should give us pause. It should always cause us to think and to remember God's faithfulness. You consider the Israelites and their years of sin and debauchery and rejecting God, and yet he was always faithful. He always called his people back to himself. God is always faithful to his promises. God promises that he will never leave nor forsake us. He promises that his grace is always sufficient. God promises that his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. God promises that he will always supply our needs. So while we're talking about the law here, just think though. Don't don't focus in on this idea of the law. Think about God's faithfulness. He promises that he will keep us until our faith is made sight. He promises that no one is able to snatch us out of his or his father's hand. My father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The Lord promises that those whom he 
has foreknown, he has called. Those who he has called, he has justified. Those who he has justified, he will sanctify. And then he will glorify. It is a fixed and a sure and a steady promise. Now this does not reduce the pain or, or the suffering or the hardship that we face in life. Knowing that God is good and that his promises stand does not mean that when we walk through difficulty, that we walk through without an eye to the difficulty that we're facing. Is that we see this difficulty that we're facing, but we also remember the promises of God that he will keep you, he will sustain you, he will strengthen you. His grace is sufficient one day at a time. It was the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians that wrote that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, dear friends, we all know that what Paul went through was not light in in the mindset of this world, nor was it momentary. He had years and years and years of great, enormous physical suffering. Paul says that this light and this momentary affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. This affliction that we face in this life, while it's not easy, while there is tremendous heartache, we know it, we've experienced it. There are many in our number who are experiencing it this very day. This hardship and this affliction in this life makes the glory of heaven all the more sweet. And as we sing in Christ the sure and steady anchor, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. The the presence of the Lord will be sweeter because you've walked through trials. You've been brought to the end of yourself and you must rely only on his grace. And dear friend, while I would never want to switch in your place while you're walking through a trial, I do envy the fact that you will know the Lord more fully when you walk with him through trials. The nearness of God is our good, and we know that nearness when we walk through the fires. You say, okay, what does this have to do with anything that we're looking at in Galatians 3? Well, nothing but everything, because we're remembering the Lord's faithfulness. We're remembering the surety of God's promises. So, dear friends, as you walk through the trial, don't hear me to say that it will be easier Because I'm telling you that God keeps his promises. But know that you serve and you walk with a good God who is faithful, who loves you, who will keep you, and who will sustain you. Verse 18, Paul continues, For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul says, If the law supersedes or replaces God's promises to Abraham, then God's covenant would be nullified. Abraham's inheritance would no longer be based on God's promise. But God's promise was not performance-based. He said, I am making you this promise because I know that you are faithful. God knew that Abraham would respond in faith because God was the one who granted Abraham that faith. 
So God says, I know that you will be faithful, so here is my promise. You will be blessed. The nations will be blessed through your seed. Paul says that God granted this inheritance to Paul. Not that, not that God was talked into giving this inheritance to Paul or that, that he was tricked into it because of Abraham's obedience, but God granted it to him. It was a gracious and free gift. So God's promise is sure because God cannot lie. God is faithful to his every promise. We are utterly hopeless in our ability to keep the law. We are utterly hopeless in our striving to come to God by faith except for his working in us. But God's promises of blessing and salvation stand and remain. So this is the surety of God's promise. Now you might notice that we skipped over verse 16. I want this verse to stand on its own because in this we see the promised seed that God promised to Abraham, the great blessing that would come through Abraham. So let's look at this promise a little more closely. Verse 16 says, Now promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say his seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Now this is a cross-reference. You know, we've looked at in the last few weeks Genesis 12 through 17 where God called out Abram. He told him to leave his homeland and to go to the land that God would one day show him. Well, now Paul moves forward in the life of Abraham. Turn back with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 22. Many of you are going to be familiar with the story when we get to it, but Genesis 22 is the story of when the Lord called Abraham to go out, to go to the top of a mount, and to sacrifice Abraham's son, Isaac. Again, many of you know this story, but I want to work through it a little bit as we get to the, the important part where Paul references in verse 15. But let's back up to verse number 2. Genesis 22, verse 2. The Lord said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham obeyed. God said, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, which I think shows that this is a foreshadowing and a type, of course, of Christ. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, take him up to the mountain that I will show you, and you offer him, you sacrifice him. I've promised that through your seed great nations will come, but you take this, your only son, the, the blessing, the, the answer of the promise that I've given you, you take this only son and you go put him on a pile of wood, set him on fire, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham obeyed. He believed and trusted in God. Dropping down to verse 9 of Genesis 22, it says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there. He ranged the wood, he bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So this is a son, potentially even full grown. There are some that think that Isaac may have been into his 20s. He was definitely in his teen years, maybe into his 20s even. Full grown son. Abraham's old at this point. 
He bound him. So Isaac was a willing participant, it seems, in this. He bound him, placed him on the altar, draws his knife, ready to plunge it into his son so he can then be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. But verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham responded, Here I am. The angel said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the, the angel of the Lord, likely pre-incarnate Christ, says, stop. I, I see that you love me. I see that you fear me. I see that you trust me. And then Abraham looks, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham went and he got that lamb. He slayed it, and he sacrificed that lamb as an offering, as an act of worship to the Lord that are on that mountain. So now that brings us to verse 15. And verse 18 is where we see the cross-reference back to Galatians 3. I want to see that backdrop to understand what's going on in the life of Abraham when God makes this promise. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn. Remember, men try to swear on something greater than themselves. But here, the the angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as of the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed me. Because you have responded, I think the Lord implies there, in faith, in faithful obedience. So that's the important backdrop to Galatians 3.16. It says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Not to multiple, not to many seeds, Paul says, but to his seed, referring to one. And he says that seed is Christ. So it is through Christ that all the nations will be blessed through the lineage of Abraham. So it's through Christ, that Abraham's offspring, who is Abraham's offspring, that all the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ has always been God's plan of salvation. All the way back to the garden, all the way back to the flood, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Mosaic covenant, even to the new covenant, even now in the church age and to the end of the age, God has had but one plan of salvation, and that is salvation through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. MacArthur wrote about this. He said, when Christ shed his blood, it covered sins on both sides of the cross. The old covenant looks toward the cross. The new covenant comes from the cross. On one hand, faith pointed forward before Christ's faith looked forward to the coming and the work of Christ and on the backside of his work faith looks and points backward 
There's no salvation, friends, before or after the cross in anything or anyone or any law-keeping or anything else except for in Christ alone. It is the work of Christ alone that can atone for sin. Apart from the work of Christ, God's only response to sin is eternal condemnation. This is the promised seed to Abraham, Christ, the one through whom all men will be saved. Now we also realize then, as we consider that the seed is Christ, we realize the surety of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham surely didn't see it in its fullness at the time. But as we look at it on the backside of, of God's promise and the backside of redemptive history, we see that God's promise to Abraham always was and always will be on the perfect, finished, and perfecting work of Jesus Christ. That is why God's promise to Abraham was sure, because God keeps his promises, and God's promise was based on the perfection of Christ. It's based upon the work of Christ. So in the greater context of this letter to the Galatians, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, do you not see that Christ is the fulfillment of this promise? It's not law-keeping. It's not that you obey the law of circumcision or the ceremonial laws or the moral laws. It's because you have faith in Christ. We glory in this promise, dear friends, because it so clearly does not depend upon our works does not depend upon us. We are saved in and through Christ alone. So now thirdly, we want to look at verses 19 through 22 today. And when we look here, we want to consider the limitations of the law. The limitations of the law. What was the purpose of the law? That's what Paul says beginning in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it's through these limitations, we're going to look at some limitations of the law, it's through these limitations of the law that we are able to, to understand and answer Paul's rhetorical question here of why the law? Why then the law? We can answer that by considering the limitations of the law. Firstly, we see that the law was limited in its purpose. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law came because of transgression. The law came to reveal and to confine and to shut up people in their sin. Matthew Henry said that the law was given to convince the Israelites of their sin and of their obnoxiousness to the divine displeasure on the account of it. It's given to show them their sin. We read Romans 5, 20 and 21 earlier. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So simply stated, the law had this very limited purpose. It was to define, 
to confine and to restrain sin. It was to bound God's people in and to show them their desperate need for a Savior. The law was also limited in its time, in the scope of its time of necessity. It is added, verse 19, because of the transgression, having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So how is the law limited in its time? It's because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus even fulfilled the law in his teaching. He took external commands and applied them internally to the heart. So he fulfilled it in himself, in his work, in going to the cross. He fulfilled the requirements of the law for us to be saved. But he also even showed in how it could be fulfilled in the teaching. These external rules, like thou shalt not commit adultery, were applied to the heart. If you lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said that unjust anger is similar in God's view to hatred, to murder. Jesus said that not only should we not make, um, not only should we not lie, taking that external act, but you should be so honest that your yes means yes and your no means no. You don't have to make a promise because you are honest. So the law was limited in its period of necessity because Jesus fulfilled the law. He completed all the requirements of the law on our behalf. The law is also limited in its authority. Again, verse 19 and down into verse 20 says that it was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The law is limited in its authority because it was it was brought about by a mediator. Moses was, was the, man, the me, man who mediated that covenant to the people of Israel. God's promise to Abraham, as Paul insinuates in verse 20, was enacted by God alone. God said, I will do this. I promise, I swear by myself to do this. Jesus Christ is the mediator of that covenant as our great high priest. So it was enacted by God alone. God is three and yet one, and God enacted the, old, the, the promises of that covenant, that promise to Abraham. However, the law required priests and sacrifices and work after work after work of men. And that was the limitation of that covenant. It had to be done over and over again. It would never be fulfilled. Verse 21, Paul tells us that the law was limited in its scope. The law was never intended to grant righteousness. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, may, ne may it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon the law. The law was given to define sin and not to impart life. It had a limited scope. Lastly, we see that the law was limited in its power and its efficacy. It was, it was not effective to save. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, really, all these limitations are interrelated. For if the power or the scope or the purpose of the law had been to save, then its power and scope and purpose would have brought about salvation. 
but that was not its purpose. The law came to shut up the people under sin. The, the Greek term for shut up here is sunkleo. means to shut in on all sides. It was used of a fishing net. You know, back in that day, they would drop a big net. They would allow the fish to swim in, and then they'd pick up the net, and the fish would be enclosed in that net. That is what the law did to us. It came in, it picked us up, it confined us, it holds us, and it does not allow us any freedom. It does not allow us any hope. So what was the power of the law? To trap us. The law was there to enclose us, to convict us, and ultimately to reveal our absolute and utter need for salvation in Christ. So, In this purpose, I guess you could say that the law was absolutely powerful. It was absolutely effective because it does show us our great need for Christ. You know, we have gone through the way of the master and we all go through those commandments and we all see that we are guilty. By God's written law, the Ten Commandments, we all easily see our guilt. So in that way, the law was effective because it reveals our guilt. It reveals ultimately our great need for Christ. That's the purpose of the law is that it shows us that we need Christ. And again, that way, the law is powerful. The law is effective because when you sit up and when you go read the Ten Commandments and you consider your life, you consider the cost of breaking those commandments, friends, you should know that you are in need of a great Savior. So again, why the law? To show you that you need Christ. To show you that you must repent of your sin and come to Him in faith. So let's close here, conclude here, and, and prepare to come to the Lord's table. And I think these verses can help serve a, um, a reminder and serve to prepare our hearts to come to the table, to consider the person and the work and the sacrifice of Christ. Paul's great concern for the Galatians is that they were turning back to the law for salvation. Ask yourself, do I turn to the law for salvation? or for righteousness, or, or maybe in our day, in our age, do I look to my baptism for salvation? Do I look to a public profession of faith for my salvation? Do I look to church membership for my salvation? Or am I washed in the precious blood of Christ? Have I come to him in faith and brokenness and repentance? Obedience doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. But those things are outworking of one who has been made new in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You have died in Christ to be made alive to righteousness. Those who would have Christ, those who would come to Christ for salvation, must forsake sin. They must go to the Savior in faith and repentance. Those of you who have Christ must remain in that state of faith and repentance. We are saved not to leave faith and repentance as we move forward, but to be pushed along, to be carried along day after day, year after year by faith and repentance. If you are not repenting every day, you need to stop and examine your life. We should be growing. We should be being made more like Christ. But if you can't find something to repent for every day, you should examine your own heart because we are held down by the bodies of this death. If you have a perfectly pure motive in everything you do, 
then you have no purpose in this life. If you are completely perfect, then the Lord would call you home. So the fact that you remain is the reminder each day that you wake up and have breath is a reminder that you need to repent, to turn from your sin and place your hope and your faith in Christ. So as we prepare to come to the table, ask yourself, am I walking with, am I walking in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there any known and unrepentant sin in my life? Do I do everything that is right with a perfectly right motive? The answer obviously is no. Does obedience save? No, it does not. Does submission to law save? No, it does not. But we are clearly called by Scripture to examine ourselves and purify ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. So as we look to respond to God's Word and to come to the table, I want to take a few moments of silent prayer. Um, Take some time to pray where you are, to ask the Lord to reveal sin to you, to grant you repentance to purify you and prepare you to come before the table to take of the supper. After a period of silent prayer, I will break the silence and I will ask the Lord to help us indeed take this in a worthy manner. So let's go before the Lord in prayer.